This time on Pole Hub, we're looking a little back and then pretty far ahead. How will the super messy election of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy impact the 2024 elections? We have new polling to dig through and new moves at the White House to ponder. Then it had its Broadway debut in 2021 and this year helped elect the first Alaskan native to Congress. Ranked choice voting has been getting a lot of attention lately and this year it could be its breakout star year. Deb Otis from Fair Vote joins us to discuss and we end with a blast from the past. What's on your Walkman? Pop in a cassette, get ready to party. It's 1990 all over again. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Mary Griffith. And I'm Lee Berengoff. Well, Jay and Lee, do you have a lucky number? Three. Hmm. Jay, I'll, pick, have a I'll, I'll pick seven because that's, I think, the Chinese lucky number, right? Yeah, I'll pick all seven. All right. Well, well, I'm guessing that for Speaker Kevin McCarthy, 15 is his new favorite number. <laughs> and that's because it took 15 rounds in the election to finally get him elected as Speaker of the House. Um, that was the longest Speaker election since before the Civil War. And I think it's safe to say it was a bit of a spectacle. So what do Americans think about McCarthy, the election, and where do we as a nation go in terms of governance? Let's take a look at some of the recent numbers. According to a new USA Today Ipsos poll, 51% of Americans say they followed the election. It's a majority, very slim majority, not an overwhelming amount of Americans who decided to follow the speaker election. A third of Americans approve of McCarthy as speaker. There's very little consensus here. 35% disapprove and 33% just don't know. Now, Americans are not um, entirely optimistic about what this means um, moving forward. 61% believe that uh, Republicans and Biden are less likely to get anything done, get any legislation passed as a result of the speaker battle. And according to CBS News, you got 55% of US adults disapprove of the speaker election process. So Lee, I'm gonna open it up to you. What do you think that, where do we go as a nation? Take out your crystal ball in terms of how we get anything done as a nation moving forward. Well, I, I would take issue with the fact that 15 is his favorite number. I would think his favorite number is five uh, because that's the majority that he holds <laughs> Uh, keeping him speaker, which I think is kind of interesting because there's a lot of or several uh, members of his uh, uh, of the caucus who are having some problems, not the least of which is Congressman Santos. And I, and I think we're, you know, the, the count is on, you know, you don't want to lose too many right now. And I think one of the things coming away from the speaker battle where 15 was the relevant number was, was that. Uh, you know, he had to give away lots of things that come with speakerships typically. Uh, and we're seeing that in the committee process. Um, so we're going to see the more extreme elements within the Republican Party. We're already seeing that mostly from the Freedom Caucus and others um, who are going to be making sure that he doesn't stray too far to the, to the middle. Uh, and that's going to make negotiation and compromise with the Senate. And with the White House, much more difficult. We no longer have one party rule in Washington. It was barely that before, uh, but we now have two party rule. And that was uh, in the current climate is never going to be uh, a pretty sight. So I think, uh, you know, we saw in our, our previous matters poll that people, as in this numbers, were somewhat optimistic that there might be more compromise. Uh, they're, uh, they would like it, I should say. Yeah, they weren't optimistic yeah. that it was going to happen. Uh, but they did think 
that there had been more accomplished, even though the number was only around 24% in the recent Congress than we've seen in a long time. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch those numbers in the next six months or so, uh, particularly because they have a lot of hurdles to uh, to jump over, not the least of which is the debt ceiling uh, limit, which is uh, the clock is ticking on. So it's a very complicated and confused picture in the legislative process in, in D.C., uh, even more so now than it's been, and it hasn't been pretty lately. So uh, one thing is that this sets the stage for the next two years, which is the second two years of Biden's first term, and maybe only term, who knows? Mm -hmm. And there are all indications that he's going to run for uh, election again in 2024. So what is the, what has this battle and what it's done? Some people, including a lot of Republicans, uh, more mainstream Republicans, think that it really damaged, the speaker battle really damaged the Republican brand. <clears throat> and if we see uh, lots of what we are already seeing, which is a lot of the most extreme elements of the Republicans gaining the microphone and gaining the attention for all of the different, you know, uh, panels and investigations they're going to do and, and flooding the, the conservative news media zone. It, it, what does that mean for Joe Biden? Uh, you know, does that make it an easier road for him to get to 2024 and, and, and have Americans thinking the Democrats are the adults and the Republicans are crazy kids? Or it, it seems like this could be bad for America, but good for Joe Biden. Well, it's, uh, it's always good to have a, a in this current climate Someone to oppose is sometimes better than to, you know, be able to spike the football in the end zone. Uh, and if the Republicans in the House uh, behave badly, uh, unlike Mitch McConnell, who I think is a good number counter, and he and the Senate Republicans seems to be speaking with a different tone than he was when he was in the majority. Uh, but certainly, as far as the House is concerned, I think it's a problem, and I think uh, Joe Biden gets a target to run against. Uh, if it isn't a Donald Trump figure, it's a confused House majority, which only has, as we mentioned, the five-seat advantage right now. So uh, we may have a situation where the Republicans are, in a sense, uh, ruining their own chances down the road. But looking ahead in the Senate, you have a lot more vulnerable Democrats up because this is the class of 2018, and there's probably uh, certainly three very vulnerable Democrats in West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana, um, and uh, they can't ill afford to lose any seats either. So, look, self-preservation is a big deal in Washington, and uh, both sides of Congress, the House and the Senate, are going to be looking towards that. The problem for Speaker uh, McCarthy is that the folks who are on the more extreme side and the Republican side in the Congress. Uh, are from fairly safe districts. These aren't the rookies who just won in Biden districts, like in the Hudson Valley. These are, you know, people who won Bobert and Handley, but certainly um, others. Uh, uh, um, MJT, uh, Matt Gatz, yeah, uh, yeah, Paul Gosar, yeah. 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 Jay, before we move on, the speaker battle comes at a time where Joe Biden seems to be pivoting. He named a new chief of staff. He's taking a more moderate stance. What, how do you think he will approach this new Congress? Well, I think Lee's right. This is a case of, of uh, having an enemy to, or an enemy, having somebody to, to fight <laughs> with. He spent the last two years um, with um, a very slim majority, but but having you know the Democrats control in the House and the Senate and accomplished more 
by many you know gauges than maybe any president since FDR or, or LBJ. He's not going to accomplish anything in comparison in these next two years. So uh, switching out chief of staff makes sense because that often happens after the, the first uh, two years of presidency. He's going into campaign mode. There's been people on the staff moving into what appears to be the campaign side. And and he's the thing that I've noticed is that he's moved to away from a lot of the things that progressive Democrats, um, you know, maybe they didn't love him for the things he did, but at least he responded to them. And he's definitely moving towards talking about things that moderate and swing voters, most importantly, swing voters, uh, the people who voted for Trump, that maybe voted for Obama before they voted for Trump, uh, the women in the suburbs, that's what he's talking about now. And it, I think it, that's what he's gonna talk about for the next two years. And independent voters to that, because uh, uh, the Democrats in the midterm elections for the first time in decades carried the independent voters, albeit narrowly, the average has been that the party out of power has carried, in this case, the Republicans had carried the independents by 15 points over the last several decades. That didn't happen this time. If that continues, that's a big telltale sign coming forward for the presidency. And while we look ahead to 2024, you know, when we're talking about the presidential election, we also want to look at how voting happens. And we want to look back and forward on this. Uh, what we're talking about is ranked choice voting. And, and if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you'll recall that we've talked about this in the past because we did a poll. We had to figure out how to poll the New York City mayoral election in 2021, which used ranked choice voting. And it was a challenge for pollsters, to, including us, to figure out how to do that. And we worked with an organization called Fair Vote uh, to help us kind of sort through the technical challenges of doing that. And Deb Otis was our guest last time to talk about ranked choice voting and joins us again, Director of Policy and Research at Fairvote. Deb, thanks for coming back. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Great to be back. So ranked choice voting uh, in the mayoral election in New York City was kind of uh, its Broadway debut. It wasn't new. It had been used in Maine and some other places. But this time, this year, um, Alaska got a lot of attention because Sarah Palin and another Republican were running and, you know, big household name. And both of them lost two elections with ranked choice voting to a Democrat in a state that is not seen as particularly friendly to Democrats. Talk to us a little bit about how ranked choice voting, you know, what, what that meant for ranked choice voting for that election to get so much attention um, and, and what it means kind of for the future of ranked choice voting. Sure. Uh, ranked choice voting in Alaska was a great success. So they first used it for a special election to fill a vacancy seat last summer. And then they used it for their entire state legislature and their federal offices in November during the general elections. And we saw uh, Alaska has a strong independent streak, and we saw voters able to demonstrate that. Voters being able to mark their ballots going beyond just red or blue, and really going after candidates who were speaking in a cross-partisan way and speaking to Alaska-specific issues. And so in the three statewide races, we saw a Democrat win for U.S. House, that is uh, Democrat Mary Peltola. We saw a uh, centrist Republican, Lisa Murkowski, win for Senate. And we saw a more conservative Republican, Dunleavy, win for governor. And so in these three statewide offices, we have a spectrum of uh, members from different parties here. And I think it's fantastic to see that a voting system let Alaska voters express that. And it rewarded candidates who campaigned to the broadest group of Alaskans, not just any one niche base. Were there any other elections that we didn't pay attention to or that we didn't see in 2022 because we were paying so much attention to Alaska? 
Well, we saw the, the routine municipal ranked choice races across cities like San Francisco uh, that have been using ranked choice voting for over a decade. And it is just routine there. Voters there equate voting with ranking. Uh, and so as ranked choice spreads more and more, many cities and states are on to their second or third cycle in San Francisco, more like sixth cycle of ranked choice voting. And it just becomes more mainstream. And we don't have to put a microscope on every single election. It's just the way elections are done there. Voters are getting better representation and better choices on the ballot. Well, ranked choice voting was sort of getting its uh, getting its uh, sea legs. Uh, and then the Maris poll got involved with it. And you were on the podcast. And now you're doing so much better. So to what do you owe, or I should say, what proportion of your success do you owe to not only your appearance on Pola, but just the fact that the Maris poll was involved altogether? Oh, well, I think the uh, probably 99% of the success is due to the Maris poll. Well, I, I, okay, so then I will continue with the questioning. Um, so there's an, we're in an era where a lot of people are doubting elections. Uh, Republicans think they're rigged. Uh, Democrats are worried about uh, voter suppression. Um, so what? Sh how do you guys show up uh, and say, hey, we've got this thing which some legislatures obviously haven't heard of, and how do you not kind of be tainted by just suspicion over anything that might be a new thing because people are so up in arms over the way the elections are currently conducted. So I guess the question is, what kind of suspicion, how do you overcome that because you guys are getting such a good uh, toehold, foothold on all this? Well, any change to the status quo is going to bring some questions, create maybe some suspicion, mm. and probably create some opposition. Um, the reason that ranked choice voting has been gaining so much support, uh, including cross-party support, is yeah. that as more and more places start using it, we are seeing the impacts. We're seeing the outcomes that it delivers, and these are positive outcomes. So places that have used ranked choice voting to eliminate uh, delayed runoffs, uh, condense two elections into one, those places are saving money and getting higher turnout. Um, yep. Ranked choice is delivering better representation for women and people of color. Ranked choice is changing the campaign incentive. So it's really issues-focused and voter-focused campaigning instead of just mudslinging and tearing down your opponent. And so with each successive year of more places using ranked choice voting, the pile of evidence grows and that it's delivering positive results in practice. Is, and so we are winning over the opposition by leading with that argument. Look how it's is, is it fair to say that moderate voters tend to do, I'm sorry, moderate candidates tend to do better under ranked choice voting than people on the fringe, either left or right? Is that a fair statement? I wouldn't go so far as to say there's any one ideology like moderate mm -hmm. that's associated with ranked choice. You know, it's designed to elect the candidate who has the broadest support among voters. Okay. And in your congressional district, the candidate with broad support might be really different ideologically than the okay. candidate in the district next door. And so this just does a better job of electing the person that voters are asking for. And 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 also uh, what. I mean, ranked choice voting, when we talked to you a while back, there was sort of a, a one size fits all when it came to ranked choice voting. And now there's so much variety. Um, do you start to lose your distinctiveness or is it now just a bigger umbrella that you can function in? And, what you know, why are different? Is there any pattern to people selecting different variations of what a fair choice or 
right choice voting? There are a couple of different kinds out there, and it's because each city or state that wants to adopt it is trying to solve a specific problem. And so their choice of which method to use is based on what their problem is. Uh, We saw Alaska combine it with open primaries, whereas we saw Maine keep their partisan primaries and then use ranked choice in the general. And this is Mm -hmm. because the folks passing ranked choice in those two states were kind of trying to solve slightly different problems. So they've got different methods, but in both cases, the ranked choice Mm -hmm. of it all is delivering on its promise. So looking Mm -hmm. ahead, we see, uh, and correct us if we don't have the numbers right, um, we're seeing 14 states with at least 27 bills either introduced or ready to be introduced. Does that sound right, first of all? And second, what's happening uh, in the landscape of ranked choice voting going forward? What are we going to see in 2023, 2024? What kinds of states or kind of elections? What's going on? What's the landscape? Uh, My count as of this morning is up to 16 states, and it's growing quickly because all of these state legislative sessions are ramping up right now in January. Uh, One of the things that we are looking forward to this year is uh, legislation around ranked choice voting in presidential primaries. Uh, Mm. It's early 2023. I'm sorry to bring up the presidential race already. Oh, no, we we, we were talking about it in 2020, so it's fine. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we saw we saw four states use ranked choice for their presidential primaries, only the Democratic side in 2020. Uh, but coming up for the 2024 race, at this point, as of this taping in January, we don't quite know how these presidential fields are going to shape up. If either or both parties has a really crowded primary, then voters are going to want a method like ranked choice to be able to parse that field and avoid what I call zombie votes. Someone goes to vote early. They cast their ballot for, say, Amy Klobuchar. Oh, and then Amy Klobuchar drops out before primary day in your state. That happened to millions of voters in 2020 Mm. and also in 2016 on the Republican side. We call these zombie votes because they're a vote for a candidate who's not in the race anymore. So with elections like presidential primaries, the field is so in flux and we need a voting method that ensures every voter's vote is still counted in those situations. What's fascinating about this is I know when we got involved with this in New York City, I started very skeptically um, thinking this is way too complicated. The public isn't going to buy it. They're going to get all confused. And all the opposite happened. Uh, so whatever, wherever you keep that magic wand, I hope you can spread <laughs> it far and wide because it uh, it, it seems to uh, it, it's an interesting thing at a very, very skeptical time where uh, elections are uh, being challenged. And now you're coming up with advocating something that um, clarifies the choices and saves money at the same time. So it uh, it's a kind of a fascinating thing. How big is uh, your organization that's doing this and are you growing? We are about 25 full-time staff and we are growing. Mm-hmm. Um, this That already represents some growth from a couple of years ago. Uh, as this reform gains traction, there are more and more opportunities for wins. And so we are growing smartly and strategically. And I'm really excited about the opportunities that we're going to have to keep expanding this reform over the next couple of years. Yeah, we're going to keep an eye on ranked choice voting and see how uh, these uh, the states and the legislatures uh, work it out. It will be fascinating to see uh, it used, and I'm sure it will be used someplace in presidential primaries. Uh, Democrats may not have a crowded one, but if any Republicans use it, I suspect we're going to have a crowded and interesting field. And it'll be really interesting to see how ranked choice uh, kind of transforms or begins to transform the presidential uh, primary process. 
Uh, so Deb, uh, thanks for joining us. Deb Otis, uh, Director of Policy and Research at FairVote. Um, and um, we're going to hit you up to come back on the show uh, once we get some of these legislatures acting, because uh, this is a great topic. Oh, and we love talking about it. She's going to become way too important as this takes off. And I, I, I don't think she's going to remember us way back when. Oh, well, don't worry. I'll always come back on. Thank you. It's always great to talk with you all. And I look forward to talking again soon. Well, the fun fact today is what's playing on America's Walkman? Now, we could call this segment, let's pick on Lee segment, because I have a funny feeling that's where we're going on this before we're done. But before we get there, in 1990, uh, CNN Time Magazine did a, a survey with the Yankelovich Company. And the question was, which one of these would you say is your favorite type of music? Favorite type of music. Number one, contemporary rock or the top 40, 30%. Number two, classical rock from the 60s and 70s. And that was at 22%. And then we get into rap music, uh, heavy metal or hard rock. And it falls down from there to a lot of things that are less well used, uh, rhythm and blues, jazz, what have you. Um, so let's start off. Let's get our definitions under control. This uh, starts the pick on Lisa. Um, what exactly is a Walkman? I was in the library. They didn't allow those. <laughs> well, they didn't ask about the Walkman. And this question is about what music was playing. We just, I think, uh, thought that since it was from 1990, a Walkman was that cassette player that people had on their hips with the wired headphones uh, as they walked around the city or near whatever. Uh, yeah, so and pretty soon, yeah. and pretty soon, soon it turned to the Discman, which was a, a portable right. CD player. Which I had one of those, and it was impossible to run or or walk with. So yeah, they skipped you know. it, and then that the, became uh, well. Then that became the iPod, which then begat the iPhone, and that brings us to, up to date. We're done. See ya. Have a good week. Yeah, no, but before the Walkman, what happened to the forty-five RPM? Uh, that was hard to carry records. around. That was hard to carry around, right? So but here's what I find. So <laughs> what I find so interesting about this is yeah. that when you look carefully at this survey, those smaller numbers like country, Western, and jazz, those were voluntary. So they were offered choices in this of contemporary rock, classic rock, rap, heavy metal, or hard rock. If you ask this question today, I think country Western might be number one. Yeah. And they didn't yeah. even put that in there. And certainly hip hop and rap very, at least from record sales and from what everybody listens to that's under 30 or 40, I would think hip hop and rap would be in there too. I think I, there's somebody we could ask about that though. Uh, welcoming back producer, line producer from Florence, Italy is Athen Hollis. Welcome back, Athen. How was yeah, your yeah, semester Athen. in Italy? Well, it was great. Glad to be back. Lying, uh, she's and, lying. <laughs> any, any, uh, any favorite music while you were over there? Um, I don't know. I feel like the type of music I would listen to, I don't know if it's even like on this list. I think but, what's most popular today would be like pop or like some of like indie genres. And I don't even think that they, they had that. So I, don't know, I think the list would definitely be different today. Do you think, I mean, do you think from the people that you, you know, the students and stuff, wouldn't rap or heavy metal be, I mean, not heavy metal, rap or hip hop be more than 10%? Wouldn't, I mean. Yeah, I definitely think rap would be higher and probably, probably hip hop would be like considered pop now, but I think that'd be really high. 
Right. That's part of the whole list. The naming, like you just said, is like, how do you name these genres? They're, they all bleed together. I mean, Little Nas X, what's he? Country, hip hop, pop? I mean, you know, that all runs together. Lee's confused now. Yeah, I'm very confused. I did not see folk music on here. Uh, the Limelighters, the Kingston Trio, Pete Seeger, um, none of them. Uh, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, very well, out Lee, of to touch. Make, to make you feel better, I'm looking at the date of this. is 1990. This was just before grunge and alternative music, alternative rock became huge in the 90s. That was before Nirvana. And so I think that if this were just asked maybe two years, three years later, the results would be a lot different. I think this is a question we could ask again. It would be really interesting to see what we got now in 2023 versus 1990. I think it would be very different. So well, that's a thought. And maybe we can talk to our questionnaire people and then put this onto a national poll and report back in a few weeks. That'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Pola at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy our free online learning portal accessible from our website. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at Marist Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub. And with any luck, it will cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as it's released. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.